he was getting older. And he had risen to about as high you could rise in his community. Uh, he was a prominent religious leader. Uh, he was a leader in the community, serving on uh, one of the highest uh, groups of leaders in, in that particular uh, area. Uh, he was a teacher. He had students that uh, he was involved in on a regular basis. But more than anything else, he was excited about the potential of what might take place during his lifetime. Anyone who had read the book of Daniel knew that God had said a long time ago through that particular prophet that in the days of these kings, Daniel had predicted four kingdoms. Those four kingdoms had come. Now the Roman Empire, being the fourth one, was, was there. And, and Daniel had said in the days of those kings, God's going to set up a kingdom that will never end. And of course, everybody knew that that kingdom would be led by the Messiah, the son of David, as prophesied through Nathan to David a thousand years earlier. And so he was excited, watching, waiting, anticipating. And then a young preacher shows up. He starts preaching up in Galilee, and he's unlike anyone, anybody had ever heard. He was dynamic. He was exciting. He was different. And he was also doing strange things. Some called them miracles. The Jews would usually call them signs. And that was another thing that the Old Testament has said, is that God would one day raise up a prophet like Moses, who would perform signs and wonders like Moses had performed. And so this older brother was putting all the pieces of the puzzle together, and he was like, this has got to be it. But he still wasn't sure. He was afraid to commit publicly. And so he set up for a night meeting. And, and so this man named Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And this is one of the pictures from The Chosen, one of my favorite parts of The Chosen series. The interaction between, between Jesus and Nicodemus in that series is just fantastic. And he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. No one can perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. But as he had heard, his teachings were strange. And so Jesus immediately shocked Nicodemus when he knew what he wanted to ask Jesus. And so Jesus went ahead and told him, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Born again? I mean, what, what in the world are you talking about? And I love the way in The Chosen they depict this scene because they make it almost a comedy routine because Nicodemus' response is, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother, mother's womb to be born. And of course, in The Chosen, Nicodemus looks at Jesus and says, that'll be a little bit difficult since my mom's been dead quite a long time. And they just laugh about it. But Jesus comes back and says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. We are in a series of lessons this month on stages of spiritual growth. And I wanted us to travel down this pathway for two reasons. Number one, to identify where we are. 
you know, spiritual growth occurs in much the same way physical growth occurs. I mean, we start off as, as babies, we become adolescents, we go into our teenage years, we then are young adults, middle-aged adults, and then older adults. I always get tickled about where we put ourselves. You know, I mean, I'll just tell you point blank, I'm in the older adult section, all right? And yet a lot of people my age, well, oh, no, no, I'm in the latter part of the middle age. And I'm like, sweetheart, middle age left you a long time ago. I'm just here to tell you. You know, and so I get tickled where people put themselves. And yet when it comes to spirituality, it's a little bit more serious. Where are you spiritual? And then secondly, how do we relate to people where they are spiritually? Especially if we are more mature as Christians, how do we relate to those who are less mature than we are? How do we respond to them? And so today, we're going to come right out of that text that Jesus had there in John chapter 3 and talk about what is it to be an infant in Christ? Last week, we started this study of all strange things because it was a little odd, stages of spiritual growth, and last week was death, okay? I mean, you're like, well, doesn't death come at the end of it? No. In the case of spirituality, we begin in a state of being dead, Paul said, and then we enter into this relationship with God. But what's fascinating to me is that when you begin to turn into the pages of the New Testament, you find a lot about this infant stage, this baby stage of spirituality. Evidently, Jesus taught about it a lot. Not just this one time with Nicodemus. Because we find it in books like 1 Peter. We find it in Paul. We find it in the Hebrew letter. I mean, it's just scattered throughout the New Testament. But in 1 Peter 2, 2, Peter will write these words, like newborn babies. We need to crave pure spiritual milk. Now, this is going to be interesting because this is going to be contrasted later to the book of Hebrews where the Hebrew writer is saying, are you still on milk? What's wrong with you? Okay? And so different writers are addressing different people at different stages of their growth. You go on and he says, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. There's that growth chart, the spiritual growth chart. And you need to grow up in your spiritual salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, like last week, as we were looking at the stage of, of spiritual death, we looked at some words that kind of help us to, you know, understand where these people are. There's also words that help us describe those who are spiritual infants. Now, I've got to be real careful here because spiritual infancy is different for people depending on when they obey the gospel. Okay, for probably the majority of us, we obeyed the gospel as a process of having grown up going to church. Just out of curiosity, how many of you were baptized somewhere around ages 10, 11, 12, 13, 14? Okay, majority of people have raised their hands. And, and for those who are raised in the faith, these words are going to be a little bit different than those who obey the gospel at a later point in their life. You know, somebody comes to know Jesus in college, never been to church, wasn't a church-going family as they were growing up. Their experiences as a babe in Christ is going to be different than someone who was raised in Christ. And so you need to understand that, okay? And so these words are not going to apply, you know, across the board the same way. 
The first word is this right here, ignorance. I mean, the first thing you know about a baby is a baby is ignorant. I mean, babies don't come into the world pre-programmed, you know, talking and, 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 and having conversations and doing math and stuff like that. I mean, we all understand that. It is pure ignorance. And the same is true spiritually. Now, again, for those of us who were raised in the church, it's not ignorance of everything in the Bible. Because we have educational programs, and I appreciate our educational program here at Hendersonville, because what does it do? It starts training people even before they can talk about the love of God and about who Jesus is. We learn to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I mean, it's still one of the most beloved songs for so many people that we learn just as kids. And we learn who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Daniel, and Goliath, and all of these characters in the Bible, we learn them coming up through first and second and third and fourth grade. Whereas someone who's never gone to church, they're going to obey the gospel and go, Abraham who? There, there's an Abraham that's not Abraham Lincoln? Yeah, dates way back a little bit further than he does. I mean, they've got to learn things that those of us raised in the church don't know. But one of the things I love is this constant emphasis in Scripture about, don't you know? I mean, here's Paul in Romans chapter 6, and he's talking to the Romans about baptism. And he says, don't you know that baptism is a reflection of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Now, i got to be honest with you. When I was baptized when I was 11 years old, I did not know that. I didn't have a clue. I wanted to be baptized because I'd been told that he who believes and is baptized will be saved, which is what Jesus said. And, and that, by the way, is good enough. But as you grow in your faith, you see other nuances that you didn't know at the time you first became a Christian. And so do you not know? The answer sometimes is no. Peter, in the last words he wrote, I mean, this is right before he died. He writes to the church, and he ends his letter with these words, but grow in grace. Boy, how important that is. Grace for yourself and grace for one another. And then notice, and in knowledge. But notice the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I was working at Mid-South Youth Camp. I was a counselor. Mid-South Youth Camp is a camp run by Freed Hardeman. In, in North Mississippi and West Tennessee, very different from Middle Tennessee. When I moved to Middle Tennessee, and I said, where does everybody around here go to camp? And they go, they go to camp at their own camps. And I'm like, excuse me? They're like, well, Hendersonville has a camp, so everybody at Hendersonville goes to, you know, Whispering Pines, and Madison has a camp, and everybody at Madison goes to that camp, and Gullisville has a camp, and their church goes, and I'm like, you're kidding me. You have your own camp? You see, in, in West Tennessee and North Mississippi, you have regional camps. And so churches come together, and they all go to either Mid-South or Sardis Christian Camp. I mean, various camps. Alabama's the same way. A lot of regional camps in Alabama. But I was at Mid-South Youth Camp, and a young man had, had befriended me while I was there. I was teaching high school class. And, and, and near the end of the week, he came up to me, and he said, Brother Leslie, could you give me some advice on, on what parts of the Bible to focus on? And I said, yes. And he says, great. I said, focus on these books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he said, well, what about the rest of the Bible? Don't worry about it right now. Get to know Jesus. Get to know Jesus inside, outside, upside, downside. You get to know Jesus. 
You learn more about Jesus than anything else right now because that is the most important thing. And it still is the same advice I'd give someone all of these years later. We have to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Ignorance, number one. Number two is confusion. And by the way, that's true whether we're growing up in the church or whether we're someone who's just converted to Christianity. There's a lot of things that when we read the Bible, we get confused about. What in the world is that talking about? And by the way, sometimes we get confused, especially if we're obeying the gospel coming straight out of the world. We're getting confused about things that, wait, wait, wait a minute, you mean that's wrong? Yeah, that's wrong. You don't need to be doing that anymore. An example of this is found over in the book of 1 Corinthians. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is how immoral the Roman world was. Sexual immorality was everywhere. It was rampant. Pornography was on the walls of all the rich people's homes. You go to Pompeii and you can see pornography painted, yes, painted, but still incredibly graphic, and it just kind of blows your mind. Most of the pagan temples, sexual relationships were a part of worship, except those sexual relationships was with temple prostitutes, both male and female. I mean, sexual immorality was everywhere. And Paul had gone to Corinth and converted a lot of people out of this pagan religion, okay? These various temples there in Corinth. The only problem is a lot of the men especially had grown up as their fathers and their grandfathers had going to the temple and having these sexual relationship with temple prostitutes. It's just been part of life. And now they come into the church and they become Christians. And all at once, Paul gets word back to him over at Ephesus that they're still visiting the temples. And so Paul has to address it. Now, they have ways that they were responding to the criticism. So Paul begins with those. I have the right to do anything. In Jesus, I'm free. And Paul says, okay, but not everything is beneficial. It doesn't do what God wants it to do. I have the right to do anything, Paul says. Yeah, but you don't want to be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. This is a kind of a blend of Greek philosophy coming into their, their views of, of life. And Paul says, hold on, because they're applying this to sexuality. In other words, if God didn't want me to eat, he wouldn't have given me a stomach. If he didn't want me to have sexual relationships, he wouldn't have made me a sexual being. Paul says, okay, y'all, I got to help you out here. The body, though, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. I mean, it belongs to him and the Lord for the body. Do you not know? You see the language again, going back to the ignorance. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? And then he asks a question to them. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a pagan temple prostitute? He says, no, never. And then he says to them, do you not know, again, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit of God, who is in you, who you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. What's Paul trying to do? He's trying to, to clear up confusion that a lot of these people who had been in the pagan world are bringing into their Christian faith. And by the way, it happens in the church today all the time. One of the biggest changes in, in 
American culture has been the relaxation on sexual norms. You see, when I, when I was growing up as a teenager, to have sexual relationships outside of marriage was wrong. Today, it's almost the norm in our culture. And I don't know how many times I've talked to someone about it, and they would say to me, now, preacher, that's my private life, and what I do in private is my business. It's not the church's business. And I have to be real careful because I'm like, oh, oh, I'm dealing with a problem just like you did at Corinth. And I've got to talk about, yeah, but you belong to Jesus. And, and Jesus wants you to honor him e even as a young person. When you're dating someone, there's norms that Jesus has set out you need to follow. It can be incredibly confusing to people. I remember talking to a couple one time, and, and this is the response I've heard so many times before. I said, you know, I know y'all are living together and you're having relationships, and I want to talk to you about that. And the guy looked at me and said, what's wrong with that? And I said, well, it's, you know, it's, it's get what, guess what we, you know, know the Bible teaches. And he says, Bible doesn't say anything about that. And I'm like, yes, it does. And he's like, no, it doesn't. God is love and he wants us to love one another. There's the response most people give. And I knew he had not been raised reading his Bible. I knew he wasn't that knowledgeable of the Bible. His wife was, or his girlfriend was, soon to be his wife. And so, and so she spoke up and she said, you just need to be quiet. And he learned that, yes, this wasn't appropriate in God's eyes. Confusion, very, very problematic for those who are babes in Christ. And we've got to help them with it. And then third is dependence. And we all know this. I mean, you just don't simply take a baby home, put him in the crib and go, honey, that's all we've got to do. We brought him into the world. Now he's on his own. We don't do that. I mean, we all know how totally dependent an infant is on the parents. On even grandparents sometimes, right? And yet, what do we do when people come up out of the waters of baptism? Oftentimes, we're like, all right, you're here. You're on your own. And we've hurt ourselves because of that. We've not helped prepare people. No one sat down with me and said, now let me tell you what it's like to walk with Jesus. No one did that. And you go, why did no one do that? Because no one had told them how to do it. You say, I grew up in a family that didn't say I love you. Do you know why my family didn't say I love you? Because their family didn't say I love you. And their family didn't say I love you. And at some point in time, you got to break the cycle. And, and so we've got to learn how to help those who are babes in Christ because they are dependent upon us. So how can we know someone is a spiritual infant? Same way we understand that somebody is dead. You remember last week? You listen. Listen to what they talk about. Infants are very much self-absorbed. You'll never have an infant at 2 o'clock in the morning go, Hey, Mom, I'm awake, I'm wet, and I'm hungry, but don't worry about it. You go back to sleep, I'll see you in the morning. Right? That doesn't happen. What happens instead is the husband says, Hey, baby needs feeding, and the wife says, Yes, yeah, your turn right? I mean, that's the way it works. I mean, it's a different world that we live in. Again, Jesus says, if you want to know what's in someone's heart, listen to what they speak, because the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So what's the spiritual needs of infants? This is all going to come out of 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes 1 Thessalonians to a brand new church. They're infants in Christ. And so Paul addresses 
them and says, here's what we tried to do. And I think it's valuable for us. Number one, they need spiritual parents. Wow, they need spiritual parents. Paul writes to them in chapter 2, verse 7, we were gentle when we came to you. We were like a mother. I mean, can you imagine a baby without a mother? I know that sometimes happens. But I can't imagine growing up and not having a mother. I mean, mothers are the ones that, boy, you just hang on, you know, when you're little with all you've got. And Paul says, by the way, that's what we tried to be to you there at Thessalonica. We tried to, we tried to love you like a mother. Can I ask you a question? Who is your spiritual mother or father in this instance? I mean, if you had to write it down right now, as a Christian, who was your spiritual parent? We oftentimes would say, well, my mom and dad was. But sometimes we had moms and dads who didn't fill that role. They were physical moms and dads, but they weren't spiritual moms and dads. Now, I had good mom, good mom and dad, and, and they were spiritual leaders to me. But by far, the one that was most influential was a guy named Arthur. Arthur was the preacher at the church I was in when I was in the seventh grade, way up in Kentucky. We'd moved to Kentucky for a year with Genesco, where my dad worked. And Arthur was the local preacher, and it was a small church. And so Arthur got me involved in leading singing, Blake. I was leading singing as a seventh grader because that was the best they had, okay? And, and it helped me get used to being in front of people. I always have been so grateful to that. A year later, we moved back to Ripley, Mississippi. About two years later, Arthur and his family moved to Ripley, Mississippi to preach for a little church there right on the outskirts of town. Now, we went to the city church inside of town, but because of our relationship with Arthur, once I got in high school, I would go by that church on the way home, and if I saw Arthur's car there at the church, I'd pull in. I don't know how many times I pulled. And I'd go in, and I'd say, I've got a Bible question to ask. I'd go in, I'd say, i got a dating question to ask. I would go in, and I'd say, hey, what are you doing? I remember the day I went in, Arthur said, what are you doing this Tuesday? And I said, well, I'm not doing anything. He said, I'm going to school in Memphis at Harding School of Theology. Would you like to go and attend class with me? And I was like, are you kidding? I'm going to graduate school, and I'm just 16? This is so cool. Y'all, that was a joke. Come on. Arthur was always there for me. So when June and I got ready to get married, I said, I want Arthur to do our wedding. And he did. First time I ever preached was not at my home church. It was at Arthur's church. He's the one that said, I want you to come and preach on a Sunday night. I mean, Arthur was always there for me, trying to teach me, trying to mentor me, trying to be a father to me, and he was. And for that, I'll be forever grateful. Who is your spiritual mother or father? And more importantly, who are you being a spiritual mother and father to? Number two is care and protection. You Christians need to be cared for. Paul said that. We were like a mother caring for you, protecting you. And Paul would write back in 2 Thessalonians saying, I know there's some people that are confusing you. I'm going to step in again as your spiritual parent because you need protection and care. We need that. I mean, our young people who obey the gospel, they need someone there who's walking with them, making sure that they're cared for and protected. Number three is sacrificial love. Boy, if there's everyone that you need when you're a babe in Christ is sacrificial love. Love that goes above and beyond. Love that says, I don't care if you do have a dirty diaper. I'm going to clean it up. I don't care if you do wake me up in the middle of the night. I'm going to get up with you. I don't, I don't care, you know, and you fill in the blanks. 
He says, because we loved you so much. He said, we wanted to help. We were happy to give you the good news because we deeply, deeply love you. Agape love, not friendship love. He barely knew these folks. But he loved them because they had come to know Jesus Christ. Boy, we need to do the same. It's been one of the biggest challenges we've had at River Bend Church. We, we baptize a good number of people out there. The problem is we can't walk with them. I mean, we can't go out there every day. We can't meet with them all the time. I mean, there's only so much influence we can have inside a maximum security prison. And I was talking to a friend Tuesday night as we were walking out, and I said, I said, Dave, I don't know how in the world we ground these people. I don't know how we keep them in the faith. He says, I know it. Because they'll come and they'll be baptized and then they don't show back up. And if they don't come up out of the pot, we can't go down to the pods. We can only go to the chapel. It's always a challenge. Sacrificial love. And then number four is an example and model. Because we loved you so much, we were ready to give you our own lives also. Surely you remember. And then he began to describe how he lived among them. And he says, you are witnesses of this. We need, we need to be so involved in babes' life in Christ that they know how we live so that they can emulate and follow that. All right. This part of the lesson is going to be difficult. Most churches have spiritual infants in them who are suffering from spiritual syndrome X. Now, you've probably never heard of spiritual syndrome X. And the reason was I created it, okay? I made it up. But I think it's as valid and as true. I mean, I've always tried to find a term for it, and I finally found it. And you go, what in the world is spiritual syndrome X? Let me show you. I want to introduce you to Brooke Greenberg. Brooke was born January 8, 1993, died October 24, 2013. Now, here's the point. Brooke is not the older person here. Brooke is the two-year-old in the arms of the other person right before they died. Brooke Greenberg served from, uh, uh, excuse me, suffered from Syndrome X, one of the rarest syndromes. It's not a disease. What's amazing is doctors can find no cause for it. None. But when she died, there was about 12 people in the world that we knew had it. Probably more that we didn't know. But here's what happens in syndrome X. You grow until you're about two years old, and then your body stops growing. Just stops growing. The brain starts stops growing, stops developing. The bones stop growing. The muscles stop growing. Everything. Everything that is normal for us as we're growing up comes to a halt. And all at once, this child just stays a baby. In the case of Brooke, Brooke could say mama and, and dada and then lost the ability to do that. But even at the age of 18 and 19, Brooke knew uh, her, her brother, knew her, her parents, of course, knew her sister would laugh. But Brooke couldn't talk. Brooke never learned anything beyond what a two-year-old 
Mark's brain would work. They did all kinds of genetic tests. They did tests of every kind and couldn't find a single cause of this syndrome. I'm convinced that what happens physically oftentimes happens spiritually and happens far more than 12 you know, cases in the world. Jesus knew that it would happen. Jesus, in writing or, or giving the parable of the sower, talks about the seed that fell among the thorns. And he says the problem with that seed is that it grows, it takes root, it begins to grow, but then it gets choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures so that it doesn't mature. I mean, these people, they, they become disciples of mine, but they get so involved in the world, both negative and positive, and there's nothing wrong with riches. There's nothing wrong with pleasures. It's when those two things consume you. It's what life is all about instead of following Jesus. And Jesus said the end result is spiritual syndrome X. There's no maturity. You turn over to 1 Corinthians and Paul writing to a church that's now five or six years old. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but by but as people who are still worldly. Why? Because you're still babies in Christ. You haven't grown up. You haven't matured. Something's wrong with your spiritual growth process. I gave you milk. He said, I had to. Not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. I mean, we all understand the natural process of growth. And here's one thing we don't do, right? I mean, we don't take an input, put it in a high chair and say, hey, here's supper. Go go at it. You would never do that. You'd be arrested. Your kids would be taken away from you. And yet I, that's oftentimes, unfortunately, what we do. And I've been guilty of it. Now, I have to realize that there's all stages in every church. And you can't always preach on milk issues. Sometimes you have to preach meat issues. And, of course, sometimes you deal with those in classes as opposed to in the auditorium. But, y'all, we have a responsibility to recognize where people are in the growth process. And, unfortunately, one of the toughest ones is when someone stagnates in their growth, when they have spiritual X syndrome. Yes, they were baptized. Yes, they still come to church. Yes, they occasionally read their Bible. But that's where it stops. Nothing ever develops beyond that. You're still worldly, Paul said, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, I mean, you want to see people who have not matured? Look for churches that are always fighting. It's a sign that something in that church is wrong. And Paul says, that's the case with you. You're acting like mere humans, not people who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And then you turn over to the book of Hebrews. And the Hebrew writer gets tougher on this than anyone else in the New Testament. I mean, he's dealing at a very difficult time in the history of the Jewish Christians. And he says, listen, some of y'all have got to grow up. I mean, you're stuck in that baby stage, and that baby stage is killing you, and it's killing the church. He says, we have much to say about this, talking about Jesus and, and, and who Jesus is in comparison to the first covenant. But it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. Look at what Paul's, excuse me, what the Hebrew writer said. You no longer try, you don't even try to understand. And that's what happens to us oftentimes spiritually is we get up to a certain level and we just plateau. And we don't want to understand. 
We don't try to understand. Preachers do that sometimes. I've seen them. I've tried not to follow their example. But I've seen preachers that, I mean, they go to college, they, they, they get their degree in Bible, and then they quit growing. I mean, you ask them, what, what, what books outside the Bible have you read lately? Oh, I just read the Bible. I don't need to read anything else. Really? You don't, you don't need to continue to grow in your education and your knowledge of spiritual matters? And oftentimes, no, I don't. And they just stagnate. And of course, when a preacher stagnates, guess what the church gets a constant diet of? Nothing but milk. Now, milk is good for infants, but it's not if you're going to grow up. The longer infants don't grow, the more they resist growth. And I've seen it, and you may have seen it, and I hope you're not experiencing it. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, the Hebrew writer says there's this progression of growth of where at some point all of us are, we should be teaching others. I mean, there's this growth pattern that you produce. That's the whole point of the parable of the soul. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. And folks, that's not a compliment. You just feed people milk, you'll keep infants in the church. And if you resist growing, you keep infants in the church. And if you keep infants in the church, then the church doesn't grow. It's that simple. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. I love the voice translation. No one who lives on milk alone can know the ins and outs of what it means to be righteous and pursue justice. That's because he or she is only a baby. Brethren, we need newborn Christians. But we don't need newborn Christians to stay newborn Christians. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, that's not in the Bible. And I'm like, yes, it is. You just haven't looked to see where it's at. I've heard people say, show me that in the Bible. I'll say, read the next verse. And they've gone, oh, yeah, I've never seen that. Yeah, there's a reason for that. I mean, Paul said to the Corinthians, I would love to say some more things to you, but I can't. And I oftentimes have people come up and say, Brother Les, what about this subject right here? And I said, well, I'd love to talk to you about that, but you're not ready for it. You're not ready for it. And oftentimes we're not as the people of God. And listen, I've been hung. I've struggled to grow. I still struggle to grow. I'm not trying to be preachy to y'all. I'm trying to be preachy to us. We've got to do a better job. We've got to be people who, as the Hebrew writer says, who, who learn to live on solid food, who's far the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to figure out the good and evil. We live in a world where all the lines have been blurred. They've all been blurred. And we see it every day. And somehow we have got to develop people of God who are able to distinguish the right and the wrong and through loving care as a spiritual parent, help people grow in their faith. And so this week, and I know this has been, been difficult, been difficult for me. As I was going through the sermon, I'm like, man, this can get awful negative. It can. 
But let me tell you, there's hope. And as we'll step up to the plate and say, you know what? I want to grow. Then there's hope for this church and for the church of God all over the world. Number one, where are you on God's spiritual growth chart? Let's just be honest. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but when I was a kid, I'd go up to the, you know, door there at the house and mom would mark where my head was, you know. Here's how tall you are. And every year it'd go up a little, 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 little. Then it got to about the third grade and then it stopped. You know, for some of us, that's what happens. We stop growing. Where are you on God's spiritual growth chart? Have you stopped growing? Number two, pray that God will lead you to someone whom you can parent the faith. We need spiritual parents. I still need a spiritual parent. Never underestimate your ability to affect someone's life simply by showing them you care. And then number three, let us all work on being patient with one another. I mean, there are times that I want to say, what's wrong? Come on, y'all. When other people are looking at me going, what's wrong? Come on, Lettuce. We've got to be patient with one another. By the way, that's the way it always is in families, right? We, we, we sometimes fuss and fight, but we also love and are patient with one another. And that's what we need to do as the family of God here at Hendersonville. I don't know where you are in the growth chart. If you've never become a child of God, that's the first stage is being born again of water and the Spirit. We'll have elders in the front foyer and the back foyer back here. If you'd like to be baptized, go and seek one of them out and say, I want to become a child of God. If you'd like to be baptized, I'll be standing up here. Come seek me out. Uh, If you need prayers, go seek out those elders. They'd be happy to pray with you. Otherwise, busy growing because that's what God has called us to do. If you have a need, respond now. As together we stand and sing. To 